All right, we're in, Jack, uh, in Zechariah, but before we look at it, let me lay some groundwork here. Sometimes people will come up to you, you know, if they know you go to church or read the Bible or you tell them you follow Jesus, and they'll ask you religious questions. And, you know, we have an obligation to do the best we can to answer those questions. We, we're happy to do so. But not all the time. You realize there were some people who came up to Jesus once and asked him a question, and he said, I'll tell you what, you answer one of my questions, and then I'll answer your question. And they were trying to mess with him, and he knew it. And he said, my question is this, the baptism of John, was it from men or from God? In other words, was John the Baptist a man of God, or did he just make all this up and he was just some self-appointed guy? It was really a tricky question for them, not for Jesus. Because if they said it was from men, they feared they'd be stoned. Because everybody knew John the Baptist was a prophet. He was highly respected, and it would have been insane to say he wasn't from God. So they couldn't say that, even though they probably believed it. But if he said it was from God, then they realized he'd say, then why don't you listen to what he says? So they didn't dare answer him, the Bible says. He said, fine, then I'm not going to tell you your answer either. There are times when people will bring you questions, but this, there's no sincerity behind the question. Sometimes they just want to make you look stupid or make themselves look good. Classic question you'll hear from somebody who thinks they're brilliant. Do you believe God's all-powerful? Yes, I do. They just reeled you in. Well, do you think he can create a rock so big that he can't lift it? They think they got you. Because obviously if you say no, then you're saying God's not all-powerful. And if you say yes, God's not all-powerful because he can't do both at the same time, gotcha. You know, that's cute. But that's not a question for physics. That's a question for philosophy. That's a question for logic. And those who know a little bit about logic know that's a non-logical question. It's a foolish question. It's nonsensical. It violates what's known as the law of non-contradiction. It's not a sensical question to ask. It's self-contradictory. So let me read to you a couple quotes I found on some articles about this concept that I just think really nail it well. God cannot perform logical absurdities. He can't, for instance, make one plus one equal three. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Referencing a rock so heavy that God cannot lift it is nonsense, just as much as referencing a square circle. The problem isn't with what God can or cannot do. It has to do with the definitions we ascribe to things. And if you choose to flip the definition mid-sentence or mid-conversation, all you're doing is making nonsense. And that's what that question is. It's a nonsensical question. Kind of like this one here. If I say I'm a liar, then how can it be true if I'm telling you the truth? And if I'm not telling you the truth, then how can I, then if I'm telling you the truth, then how can I be a liar? It's that kind of thing. It just sets up a little stupid circle that doesn't make any sense. It's fun to play with, but it doesn't mean anything. The question, another quote, and therefore the perceived paradox is meaningless. Nonsense does not suddenly acquire sense and meaning with the addition of the two words, God can, before it. 
So it's really nonsense. But to play along with nonsense, think about it for a minute. It's just like the philosophical question, what happens if the irresistible force meets the unmovable object? It's the exact same kind of question. Well, that's also nonsense for lots of reasons. First of all, there's no such thing as an irresistible force nor an unmovable object. None of those things exist in nature. We've made them up. So we're making up something that doesn't exist to play with our own heads and saying, what would happen if they met? It would be like saying, what if the Easter Bunny met the Tooth Fairy? I don't know. They don't exist. It ain't going to happen. Yeah, but what would happen if they did? You know, people like to play games. But I'll play back with you. I'll tell you exactly what would happen. If the irresistible force met the unmovable object, they would pass right through one another without interacting at all. Well, how do I know that? Because the force is irresistible. You can't resist it. And the object is unmovable. It can't move. So there's your answer. <laughs> but it's just, it's just nonsense. There's a proverb that a lot of Bibles translate different ways because nobody's exactly sure what it means. But this version of it, I love. Listen, contemporary English version. Don't make a fool of yourself by answering a fool. But if you answer a fool, show how foolish he is so he won't feel smart. <laughs> I think that's what Jesus did. Oftentimes. Sometimes they asked him questions to trap him up and make him look bad. Sometimes they asked him questions to um, get him in trouble. See, they weren't sincere questions. They were just trying to bust him, see if they could trip him up. Let me give you an example. I'm in Luke 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. They were hoping to get him to say something illegal so that he would get arrested. So the spies questioned him. They think they're so smart. They had it all planned out. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. Ah, they start with the flattery. You know, the Bible says, watch out for people that flatter you. We know that you speak the truth. We know that you don't show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You're the man. You're, you're smart. We've got a little question for you. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, in our culture, we don't understand the threat of the question because, of course, we pay taxes. What's the big deal? But the coins had uh, Caesar's picture on it. And the Jewish people were being overrun by Romans. It was their country. So they were teaching, first of all, that it was idolatrous to even carry the coin because of his image on it. And you're giving money to Rome, which is oppressing Israel, and you're supporting your oppressors. So if he said, no, don't give it to Caesar, that might have made one Jewish faction happy, but it would have made him a rebel against Rome, and he could have been arrested for inciting rebellion. If he said, yes, give it, that would have upset all the Jewish people who believed it was a sin to support Rome. They thought they had him between a rock and a hard place, between an immovable object and an irresistible force. They had him. No, they didn't. They're messing with the Son of God. He's way out of their league. 
He saw through their duplicity, and he said to them, show me a denarius. So somebody pulls out a denarius, probably out of his pocket, looks something like this. And he says, whose portrait and its inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. And it's, this is awesome. It says, they were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. He shut them up. Brilliant. Don't make a fool of yourself by answering a fool, but if you answer a fool, show him how foolish he is. Jesus did quite well there. So sometimes people will ask you questions to make themselves look good or you look bad. Sometimes they'll ask questions to get you into trouble. Sometimes they'll ask sincere questions. But the questions themselves are misguided. Let me give you a lame example, because I couldn't think of a better. Steve, I'm going to visit that big chocolate factory called Hershey. So do I take I-10 to to California or 8? Dude, it's in Pennsylvania. You don't want to go to California. It's the other way. So if the question is, 8 or 10 to California, what should I take? You can't answer, because it's a misguided question. The answer is, neither. You're, you're asking the wrong question. You're not even in the right ballpark. So sometimes people will think they're quite... It's a sincere, honest question, not trying to trip anybody, not trying to trap anybody, but it's a misguided question nevertheless. The Bible deals with those too. And that's what brings us to Zechariah chapter 7. That's exactly what happened. Now, you remember the Jewish people were dispersed. The temple was destroyed. For roughly 70 years, we were without home or without temple. God told the people to go back and start rebuilding the temple. So a boatload of people went back and started to rebuild the temple. The temple gets rebuilt. Now, when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was sacked, the people in Babylon started fasting and praying on the anniversary every month, uh, every five fifth month and seventh month, every year. Well, now the temple's back, but they've been doing this for 70 years. Are they supposed to keep fasting, or should they stop fasting now? They didn't know. It was an honest religious question. Hey, the temple's rebuilt. What should we do with our tradition of fasting on the seventh month? What should we do? Let me read to you. The people of Bethel had sent men, asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets... Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? Seems like a good, fair, honest question, and God doesn't answer it. You know what he does? He asks them a question. Just like Jesus did concerning John the Baptist. By the way, that's a very Jewish thing. Um, A lot of Jewish people will do that about questions. They'll come back with a question. I find it very difficult to talk to Gentiles because they don't get that. And so I'm trying to adapt my ways after all these years to asking fewer questions. But the way is, when somebody asks me a hard question, I don't want to give them the answer. I want to make them think about it. And I want them to come up with the answer based on the question that I asked them. But when somebody asks me a question, I ask them a question. They're like, what does that have to do with anything? Think about it. But they don't make that step. This is quite biblical. So, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people. Here comes the question. Ask all the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? 
God didn't answer their question. He did more. He answered the questioner's need, not their question. It's not about fasting. Fifth month, seventh month, first month, it's irrelevant because your heart, you're a bunch of hypocrites, and you're not fasting for me anyway. So what do I care when you fast? He said all that by asking a question. It's to get them to think, to examine themselves. And then when they realize, if they realize, because hypocrites don't often realize anything, but if they realize that their hearts are in the wrong place, then that question is no longer relevant. The question then becomes, what do we do to get right with God? We'll worry about the fasting down the road. That's just religiosity. And religiosity without the right heart means nothing. Well, in God's true fashion, he now tells them how to get right with him. He doesn't answer the fasting question. He just says, here's what you need to do. Zechariah 7, 8 through 10. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. He was just telling them, you're a bunch of religious hypocrites. I don't care about your fasts. Start behaving like good godly people, then we'll talk. What specifically do we need to do, God? He told them. They didn't ask, but he told them anyway. You want to get right with God, don't worry about fasting. Worry about justice. Now, don't misunderstand me, people. Fasting is spiritual, and there's ways and times to do it. But it's meaningless for hypocrites. And that's what these people were. So he wanted to get them right in their hearts first. Then talk about fasting. He tells them in this little section to work on eight things. Why eight? I don't know. That's what he picked. And he did it in a very interesting way. Um, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, in the Bible, in ancient Hebrew, one of the ways of emphasizing something was to set it up in contrast or parallel to something else. It's, it's kind of like Jewish poetry, but instead of it being sound rhyme, it's like thought parallel, thought rhyme. It's like thought poetry. So it's laid out in what should be a diagram. It just runs in the script, but it looks and thinks and feels like a diagram. He lays it out. Two um, things to do in one verse, two things to do in the other verse. Then he skips over a few verses, two things to do in this verse, and two things to do in the next verse. So let's just take a quick look at that. Chapter 7, verse 9. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, first box. Then the next uh, box, it says in verse 9, administer true justice. And then in the next box, show mercy and compassion to one another. Now, I put these in two boxes because there's two instructions, but they're the same color because they're one verse. So in one verse, he gives two instructions. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Two in one verse. And then in the next verse, two more. Let's take a look. Verse 10. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. And then he also says in the verse 10, in the next box, in your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Laying it out in parallel for emphasis. Then in the next chapter, and remember, chapter designations are artificial. They didn't exist in the original. We just put them in there to help us find our way around. So a few verses later, chapter 8, verse 16, these are the things you are to do. Next box, verse 16, number 5. Speak the truth to each other. 
And then, of course, in that verse, one more thing in the next box, render true and sound judgments in your courts. And then in the next verse, two more things. First box, do not plot evil against your neighbor. And next box, do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. Eight things in just those four, uh, two verses, four verses that he wants people to know. Now, we don't have time to look at all eight of them. So I just grabbed two randomly that I liked that I wanted to talk about. And we're going to look at two of them. The first one, I think you'll understand why I picked it. It's from chapter 7, verse 9. Show mercy and compassion. What is compassion? I wanted to give you a dictionary definition. Here's what Webster says. Sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. I thought that was brilliant. Now let me put it into English. Feeling bad for people and wanting to help them. That's compassion. And I've got a nice little video I'd like to show you that illustrates it. Let's take a look. Every day is so wonderful And suddenly it's hard to breathe Now and then I get insecure from all the pain. I'm so ashamed. Would it be okay if I sat here? I am beautiful. No matter what. Is she what serious? Say, Whatever. New girl. Reaching out. Pass it on. A message from the Foundation for a Better Life. I mean, that's just nice. It doesn't take much to show compassion. It can be something that simple. New girl. Her experience of that school was going to be determined in that five minutes. It could have been horrible or wonderful. And it started out, initially, it was going to be horrible. If nobody sat down with her, who knows what would have happened. So somebody showed just a little bit of compassion and totally changed everything and turned it around. God tells people, show compassion, show mercy. You know, he's that way. And he wants us to emulate him. He's the best. Psalm 103.13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God looks to us just like we look to our children. You know, when your child is just learning how to walk and he falls down and busts a, a, his lip open or something, man, your heart grieves for that child. And you go and you pick him up and you kiss his cheek and you, you brush him off and you say, you know, let's walk in the grass for a while till you get this a little better. You know, compassion. In fact, it was God's compassion that kept Israel sustained all those years where she should have been annihilated. 2 Kings 13, 23. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion. And he showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Compassion. He told ancient Israel, be compassionate. And he tells the church today, be compassionate. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Clothe yourselves. That's an interesting set of words. What do you envision? Be totally and completely covered and wrapped and surrounded in compassion. That's what people see, and that's what we're first to live, because we're totally supposed to be wrapped up in it. I wish I had brought a blanket just to give you that nice little picture of compassion. Israel, at that time and in those circumstances, was religious but not righteous. Walking down the street, especially when I'm in places like Israel and New York, where there's a lot of Orthodox Jewish people, just looking at them, I know they're Orthodox. I know they're religious, but I don't know they're righteous. We often assume because they're religious, they must be righteous. Priests, oh, they're religious, they must be righteous, and yet the news shows us otherwise. Pastors, same thing. You can have a fish on your bumper. Doesn't make you a righteous person. You can't see righteousness unless you're clothed in it. And then it's easy to see. So the first thing God told these people, he said, don't worry about the fasting. Clothe yourselves in compassion. Second thing I want to share with you out of those eight is in verse 16. It says, speak the truth to each other which is virtually quoted in the New Testament with a couple more words. It says, speak the truth in love. We're told, as God's people, to speak the truth. Do you ever ask yourself why people lie? Why do people lie? I had to look it up. I know one or two reasons, but I wanted to see people who analyzed it and researched it, what they had to say. And I looked at several articles, and they all had their lists. I'm giving you the most concise list that I liked best, and a lot of them, of course, repeated what the others had said. But this list of six pretty much covers it. Here's why we as human beings lie. Number one, fear of harm. Number two, fear of conflict. Number three, fear of punishment. Number four, fear of rejection. Number five, fear of loss. You know, like we'll lose something, maybe greed or something. You know, we're afraid we'll lose our job or whatever. Now, before I give you the, the last one, I want to point out the obvious. Fear, 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 fear. Doesn't the Bible say perfect love casts out fear? So it's not much of a stretch to say that when we walk in the world of lying, we walk in the world of fear, which is just the opposite of love. Lying is bad on so many levels. Now, I know there's always good exceptions to deceit, like when the Pharaoh's men came to the midwives and said, hey, why haven't you been killing these babies? And they lied about it, and God blessed them for it. Yeah, you can lie to save a baby's life. That's good. <laughs> but generally speaking, those aren't the reasons we lie. But it does bring me to the sixth reason, which is an altruistic reason why people lie. I don't want to say it's a good reason, but it, it kind of is. We often lie to help our friends and loved ones feel better. 
out of the six, there's one of them where at least our motive seems to be right. I'm not saying it's right, but the motive is a positive mo motive as opposed to the other five, which are all fear. I mean, we all bend the truth on occasion. Hey, honey, how do you like my new haircut? Well, guys, let me tell you something. Tell her the truth or she's going to keep it. <laughs> honey, how did you like the new dinner I cooked up tonight? You better tell her the truth or she's going to keep cooking it. Now, speak the truth in love. You know, honey, you're always pretty, but I liked your hair the way it was before better. I, like, I prefer longer. Boom, baby! Brownie points. How do you like this meal? You know, I like your burritos. I like your chili. I like your meatloaf. I'd prefer those. There's a way to speak the truth in love almost all the time. But listen to Proverbs 27. A truly good friend will openly correct you. You can trust a friend who corrects you, but kisses from an enemy are nothing but lies. People who love you, they'll tell you the truth, even if it's going to hurt your feelings. I was just talking to my kids this morning on the way over here about something. I said that it seems to be that the number one thing that non-biblically oriented people, the, the number one sin for people who don't believe in sin is hurting somebody's feelings. So we will lie, we will dissemble, we will do whatever it takes because we don't want anybody to feel bad. Well, a friend will let you feel bad because the bigger picture is more important. Remember the story about the emperor who had on no clothes? Everybody lied to him and he was walking around naked looking like an idiot. Somebody needed to love on that emperor and tell him, dude, you got no clothes on, go home and cover up. We have to sometimes tell our friends the truth. Please tell them they can't sing before they go on America's Idol. You know? <laughs> Please tell them. What? Didn't anybody tell these people they can't sing? Didn't anybody tell them the truth? It's like, I, am, I don't even watch that show anymore because I know they put those people on there just to humiliate them and make them look stupid in front of America. I prefer the voice. They don't do that to anybody there. But man, where do they come up with people who sing that poorly on a national stage? And sometimes I'll ask them, do you think you can sing good? Yeah, everybody tells me I sing great. Find some new friends. Because, man, you cannot sing. A truly good friend will openly correct you. You can trust a friend who corrects you. But kisses from an enemy are nothing but lies. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why did he call himself the truth? Because that's just how important it is. That's his nature. It's his character. It's who, he, it's who and what he is. And so when we dabble in non-truth, we're dabbling in the opposite of what Jesus is and what he's called us to be. So he calls himself the truth, right? Look at what he says about the devil. He has never obeyed the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his natural language. He does this because he is a liar. He is the father of lies. You know, I'm learning Hebrew. I just said I can speak in Hebrew. Now, if I said that in Israel, they'd start talking to me, and I have no clue what they say after that, because I'm learning Hebrew. So, Jim, 
You're going to see me talking in Hebrew when I'm in Israel, and you're going to think I know my stuff. I'm just blowing smoke, man. <laughs> On my last tour, I was talking to our guide in Hebrew, and everybody then thought I was fluent in Hebrew. I said, like, no, I just use the words I know to practice. And he's gentle enough to speak to me in English because he knows I won't understand him. <laughs> and I know a little bit of Spanish. But I have a very hard time learning Spanish and Hebrew at the same time. I end up speaking half and half. And then nobody understands me. But the devil speaks lies. That's his language. Jesus said that. It's his natural language. He speaks his natural language. Don't learn that language. Don't become fluent in lie. That's a bad language. There are no good words in that language. They're all four-letter words. So learn Spanish, learn Hebrew, learn German, but don't learn Satan. That's a bad language. You know, we call German Germanic. That's satanic as the language. Don't learn it. I've shared this quote with you before. I love it. It's from Mark Twain. It's funny. I found the quote online a few weeks ago, and so I used it. But then I decided to download some of his books, and I've been reading through his books, and I actually read the book where the quote was from, and that was just fun. I was like, ooh, discovery. He said, if you don't lie, you never have to remember anything. I like it. Ben Franklin, honesty is the best policy. It's good. So let me tell you a story. There was this CEO of a huge corporation. You know, just think of, you know, big mega bucks, billion dollars worth of corporation, meeting in their ivory tower up on Wall Street overlooking the entire New York skyline. The conference room is filled with vice presidents because the CEO has an announcement to make, and he required all the vice presidents to be there. Even the ones from overseas were either Skyped in or they flew in for the meeting. It was that big of a deal. He said, well, as you know, I have an important announcement to make. I'm retiring, and my successor is going to be one of you in this room. You're going to be the next CEO of you know, Big Bucks, Inc. Who wouldn't want that job? One of the most influential people in the world. Wealthy as all get out, controlling multinational corporations all over the planet. Dream come true. One of you in this room is going to have the job. So he calls forward one of his engineers who works in the... Um, I don't know what, even what you call it, farming industry. You know, he's always inventing chemicals to kill bugs and nutrients to help plants grow. That's his job, and he's the head of that department. And he hands everybody uh, a little thing full of dirt and a seed. And he just puts it right into their hand. One hand, the bucket or whatever the thing's called, the pot. The other hand, the seed. He said, now, I want you all to go home and plant that seed. Two months' time, in eight weeks, you're going to be back here and show me the results of your labors. Based on those results, one of you will be the next CEO. The decision will be made that day. They're like, in eight weeks, one of us is going to be CEO. So they all go home and they read up on how to plant. They're, they're CEOs, they're, they're, they're managers, they don't know. So they read up on how to water, just put it in the right sunlight, and they start texting and twittering each other. And one guy goes, you know, it's been three days and now I'm seeing a little, little green thing pop out of the dirt. And another guy texts and says, oh, that's nothing. Mine's already an inch tall. 
another week or two passes and a guy twitters everybody and he says, I've got a bud. Another guy goes, oh, that's nothing. Mine split into three. And this is going on six weeks, seven weeks. By the eighth week, all the guys are in the room with their pots, overflowing, some with fruit, some with big flowers. And the big kahuna goes around and says, so tell me, you know, how did, how did you get this plant to flower? What did you do? He said, well, I don't know anything about plants, so I went online. And it said, you know, in this hemisphere, you need X amount of light. So we adjusted it on the windowsill so the temperature would be just right. And I read how much water I would need to make it germinate. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And that's why I got this plant before you. And the CEO went around the room, and everybody told their stories. But there was one guy. During all these weeks, seeing all the Twitter posts, he kept going to his wife. I got nothing. She said, well, research how to grow a plant. I did. I've even talked to people. Nothing's happening. What do I do? What can you do? You know, you're just going to have to show up with nothing. I'd rather just not even show up. Everybody else has got beautiful plants. I got nothing. Honey, you did your best. So the CEO comes to him. He's got dirt. That's it. Not even a little speck of growth. The CEO says, so tell me, what did you do? Everybody else has these amazing plants. Didn't you do your research? He said, yeah, actually I did. I, I researched for hours. I even con contacted a couple of executives and professionals in the farming industry. I visited three nurseries and a farm and got advice from all these guys. I did everything I was supposed to do, and nothing happened. Okay. The guy hung his head down. He was just so embarrassed. Everybody's snickering at him. So the CEO gets up in front of his platform. He says, I have selected the new CEO. And everybody's, hush. And he points at the guy with no plant. He says, come on up here. And the guy's like, yeah, you. So he walks up there, and everybody's like stunned. This is your new CEO. See, I gave you all a sterilized seed. This is the only honest man amongst you. He's your new boss. Bum, 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 bum. Honesty is the best policy. Anything else is of the devil. Do not speak his language. Speak the language of love, the language of Jesus. Jesus told, I mean, Zechariah told ancient Israel on God's behalf eight things in the verses we looked at to work on. We only looked at two today. Compassion and honesty. So I'd encourage you to go home and clothe yourselves in compassion and do everything within your power to speak the truth in love. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we understand but we need help. Help us to be more compassionate. Pour compassion into our hearts and help us not be afraid so that we might speak the truth and live the truth. In fact, Lord, even speaking the truth about who Jesus is and telling people that if they ignore him, they will end up in hell and not fearing the rejection that will come from that, but being more inspired by the love of the hope that they might be redeemed. Help us to be strong. Help us to be loving. 
For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.